I'm glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 11. Any middle, middle schoolers in the room, y'all can slip out back with Jeremy and Emily. Bo mentioned um, Lent. We talked last week about you know, how we want to engage. I hope you're all participating in some level, fasting or giving up some other activity as a way of physical expression of an internal desire to hunger uh, more deeply for the Lord. Sunday, I didn't mention this last week, Sunday's kind of a free day. It's a celebration day, so eat all the dessert you want or whatever it is that you gave up without guilt, um, and then you can jump back in tomorrow. So again, I hope all of you are participating on some level, and it's not a, it's not a contest to see who can give up the most, and you're certainly not, God doesn't love you more because of your participation in Lent. It's just a, it's a way for us to express, again, physically to express a desire uh, for Him to increase our hunger for Him, and that's the hope for us throughout the next six weeks. All right, Revelation 11. So Revelation 8, 9, 10, and 11, those four chapters are all about these seven trumpets. Six of them are blown, just run after the other. They're warning judgments that are intended to bring people to repentance, but they don't work. Then John has two visions. One vision, he eats a scroll. It's a scroll that, G, that the Father had in his hand. Jesus unseals the scroll, gives it to an angel. An angel gives it to John. John eats it. So he's going to tell us what's on it. That's what it means for him to eat the scroll. He's going to tell us the contents in the coming chapters. And then last week we saw another vision. Uh, there's a, the temple area is measured. We said that's a symbol of God promising protection for his people, because in the New Testament, the temple is the people of God. And then we saw these two witnesses, and we said they represent the church. And in the church's responsibility during a time of difficulty and persecution is to be a faithful witness, even if it means death, and that God will use the faithful witness of the church to draw the nations to himself. So now today, uh, verse 15, we're going to pick up with the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servant, the prophet, your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So that can be, that's a bit anticlimactic. The seventh trumpet, maybe we're thinking it's going to be something dramatic. The, um, the, this angel in chapter 10 says when the seventh angel sounds it. So I'm thinking it's going to be something, you know, again, dramatic and decisive if the mystery of God is going to be accomplished. And what we get is a statement or a declaration from a loud voice, and we don't know who it was, and then we get a worship song, a hymn. And again, that may seem maybe a bit out of place. The fifth trumpet is called the first woe, and the sixth trumpet is called the second woe. And so we may think, well, the seventh trumpet will be the third woe. So maybe if it's not something dramatic and decisive, then maybe it's going to be something terrible. You know, the fifth and the sixth trumpet were terrible, these demonic plagues that were brutal. And maybe the seventh will be something in keeping with that, but it's not that either. Again, it's his statement and then a worship song. 
What that seventh trumpet is, it's like a, it's an executive summary of what's coming in Revelation. It's cliff notes. Here's what's about to happen. The mystery of God is, it's God's plan. It's how God is going to make the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of his son. How exactly is he going to do that? How is he going to establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? That's his mystery that's about to be accomplished. And then this hymn gives us a few details. Well, Jesus is going to reign. It's interesting. Uh, normally when we see God described, he's described as the one who was and who is and who is to come. And this time it's just who was and who is, not who is to come, because in this passage, he's already come. That's what it means for the mystery of God to be accomplished. It's going to be when Jesus returns. So Jesus is going to reign the wrath of God. That's his righteous anger towards sin is going to be poured out on the earth. God's going to judge everybody. He's going to judge his people and reward them. And he's going to judge those who are hostile to him and punish them. So all of that is, is what we're going to see unfolding in this second half of Revelation. And then John sees a picture or a vision of the ark. And the ark is a reminder of God's commitment to his people that he's going to fulfill his promise to be our God and for us to be his people. And all of that weather phenomenon refers back to chapter 4 in the throne room. It reminds us that everything that God is doing or everything that we're going to read about is done, um, it's God sovereignly working on the earth. So that's the seventh trumpet. I'm going to pause here. We're halfway through Revelation. Uh, and it can be difficult to keep all of it in mind. There's a lot going on and it can be difficult to kind of keep our minds around what, what are the big points? What are the things I need to be keeping in mind so I can understand exactly what's happening? So super brief synopsis, chapter one, remember way, way back, that's just the setting. Here's who wrote it, here's who he wrote it to, and here's why. Chapter two and three, those are those seven letters. Jesus has an, uh, a word of introduction to each one of these seven churches that are in Turkey, and each one of those churches is being squeezed by the Roman Empire. They're responding differently. And all of Revelation has to make sense to those seven churches because that's who the letter was originally sent to. And God, and again, the Father has this scroll and it's sealed with seven seals. And then Jesus takes the scroll from the Father. Chapter 6 through 11, that's where things start getting a little weird. You can put all of those chapters under the heading of life during the last days or life during the end times. Acts chapter 2, Peter says we're living in the last days. So that was the first day of the church 2,000 years ago. So your whole life has been lived in the last days. The life of your parents and your grandparents going back 2,000 years. We've been living in the last days or we've been living in the end times. And Revelation 6 through 11 says, here's what you can expect during that time. The gospel is being preached. God is establishing his kingdom through the faithful witness of his people, even in the midst of suffering. The effects of sin are being experienced on the earth. We're experiencing war. We're experiencing famine. We're experiencing plague. We're experiencing the persecution of the church. At some point during this stretch of time called the last days, there's going to be a, we're going to cross a threshold or we're going to enter into a new season of that bigger time period called the day of the Lord. And that, that's going to be decisive. I don't think we're going to miss that. And that's when, uh, that, that's when Jesus is returned. His, his return will be even closer. Part of that day of the Lord is going to be marked by a time called the Great Tribulation, a, a time of, of squeezing of the world and the church. God's going to increase his judgments towards the world. Still designed to draw people to repentance, 
but his judgments are going to be more intense and more widespread. The church is going to experience more suffering. Again, it's going to be more intense and it's going to be more widespread. And in the midst of all of that, God has promised to spiritually protect his people. He never promises our physical protection, but he guarantees throughout Revelation multiple times our spiritual protection. Our adoption in him is secure and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. His expectation for us is simply that we would be faithful. That's it. Simply be faithful to the end. Be a faithful witness, even if it costs you your life. He's going to keep you as his, and he's going to take care of the rest. It's a message of revelation. It's not giving us a timeline for the future. It's giving us perspective on the present. Here's how I want you to live in light of the fact that that it's the last days, that it is the end times, in light of the fact that God is judging the world, in light of the fact that his kingdom is advancing, in light of the fact that the church is being persecuted. Here's how I want you to live. I want you to be a faithful witness. I want you to stand firm until the end. Chapter 12 is, uh, it, it's, gonna, it's almost whiplash. It's so different. 17 verses. And we're going to look at all 17 today. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a synopsis. It's a summary of what's been going on in the spiritual world. While all of these things are happening on the earth, judgment and gospel and suffering and witness, what's been going, what's been going on in heaven? And chapter 12 gives us a clue as to what has been happening. We're going to read it in two sections. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its seven heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God into his throne. The woman fled into where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. So Revelation 12 shows us a glimpse into this battle between God and between Satan. First thing John sees is a vision of this woman. The woman, I think, is the people of God. I don't think it's Eve. I don't think it's Mary. I think it's the people of God. Old Testament and New Testament, Israel and the church. So here, the first thing John sees, I think, is Israel as Israel is waiting the coming of the Messiah. First thing John sees. Second thing he sees is Satan, this enormous red dragon. Seven heads, each head has a crown. That symbolizes authority. Satan has a lot of authority. Seven is the number of completeness. Ten horns, horns symbolize power. Ten is the number of magnitude. He has a lot of power. He's a formidable enemy. A lot of authority, a lot of power. And he's positioned himself to to, to kill the, the child, the Messiah, who will be born. That's his goal. You can think back, Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus is born and Herod says, I want you 
to kill all of the male babies in Bethlehem, every male child under two years old. That's an expression of what you just read. Jesus, before he begins his public ministry, 40 years and 40 days, Satan is just pecking at him, tempting him. And those are real temptations. It's not a formality. Jesus, the Bible says, was uh, tempted in every way just as we are. They were legitimate temptations and he could have given in. He could have turned stones into bread. It would have destroyed the Father's plan. He could have jumped off the highest place from the temple. would have destroyed the Father's plan. Could have bowed down and worshipped Satan. would have destroyed the Father's plan. The enemy was trying to destroy Jesus. He's trying to destroy the Messiah. Luke, I think it's 21, 22, somewhere in there, uh, before Judas betrays Jesus, it says Satan entered Judas's heart. He was a mover even in, uh, for the, in the crucifixion. Satan attempted to destroy the Messiah but he was unsuccessful. What we see in Revelation is just the child is born and he's snatched up to heaven. Fast forward the 33 years of his life. What matters in this story is the, the Messiah was born and that the Messiah is safe at the right hand of the Father. And then the woman is taken to the wilderness for 1260 days. We're gonna come back to that in a minute. And then we see, well, what was the, here? So that's kind of what was happening on earth. And then the same action from a heavenly perspective there's this battle between Michael and the archangel and his angels and the devil and his angels. Some people say the third of the stars that were knocked out of the sky refer to the angels who fell with Satan or who aligned themselves with Satan in their rebellion against the Father. I don't know, but that's what some people say. You can read Jude 6, and there's a little background for that. So we've got this battle. Michael and his angels win. So Satan is evicted. He's kicked out. Other people disagree. I think it happened on the first Easter. John sa- or excuse me, Jesus says in John 12, 31, that he's going to drive out Satan. We know Satan has not been driven out of this world. He's the prince of the air. I think he's been driven out of heaven. Colossians 2 says that Jesus made a public spectacle of the enemy by his death. So I think G- that Satan has been kicked out of heaven. I think that happened the first Easter. And now he is furious because his plan has been thwarted. His, his plan A, if you can imagine, was to be like God. He wanted to displace the Father off the throne. That's done. He wasn't able to kill the Messiah, and he got kicked out of heaven. Chapter, or excuse me, verse 10 picks up from there. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him, that accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So here's a voice kind of saying, here's what's going on. It's kind of, again, it's a summary. Here's what's happening. Salvation, power of the kingdom of God has come. The authority of the Messiah, Satan has been kicked out of heaven. And now he's furious because of that. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time times and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. 
those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So this is where I think we're living. Satan has been kicked out of heaven. He knows his time is short. He knows we're living in the last days. He knows when Jesus returns, his time is up. And so he's directed all of his rage towards the church. He wasn't able to touch Jesus. His plan A has been thwarted. Plan B is wreak as much havoc as I can on the people of God, the woman, the church. And do as much damage as I can. And what we see here, again, is a promise of spiritual protection. 1,260 days is the same as 42 months. We saw that last week. Is the same as a time, times, and half a time. All of that is three and a half years. Three and a half years is symbolic of a limited period of time of evil and persecution, of struggle for the church. And what we see is that God is saying, I'm going to protect you in the midst of that. Again, it's not physical protection. It's spiritual protection. We'll see that opening up. Remember, it's a vision. That's just a, that's a visual way of saying God is protecting us from the attacks of the enemy. And then I think the enemy realizes he's not going to be able to destroy the church as a whole. Then he begins to go after individuals within the church. He, he looks at people within the church and attacks. So he knows he's not going to be able to take out the church as a whole, the, the entire people of God. And we've seen that play out over the course of history. So what does this mean for us? Satan is defeated, but he's not destroyed. So he's a formidable enemy. He's got seven heads with crowns on them and ten horns. That's authority and that's power and that's real. And we want to be respectful of that in the, in the sense of respecting our enemy. But we don't want to be scared of him. He is defeated, but he's not yet destroyed. He's furious because he's been kicked out of heaven. His plan has been thwarted, and he's directing all of that rage towards the people of God, seeking to steal and kill and destroy as much as possible. And next week, we'll look at the two primary weapons he uses to do that. Well, the the thing I want us to focus on today are that verse uh, 10 and 11, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed, that's us, we triumphed over him, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So there's two scenes that are interesting in the Old Testament, Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3. And in both of those passages, Satan appears before the Father in kind of a, throne, a courtroom type setting. It's the throne room. And he's appearing, to me, it's maybe he's appearing like a prosecuting attorney. And he is accusing individuals who are God's people before the Father. He's basically saying they're, they're not... The only reason that Job is obedient, the only reason that Job is righteous is because you've made him rich. The only reason he's following you is because you've given him a blessed life. If you were to take those things away, he would, he would curse you. And you've, you know the rest of Job. What happens? Satan accuses Job to the, to the father. Zechariah 3 does the same thing. Zechariah sees a vision and in the vision... Again, kind of a courtroom scene, Satan as a prosecutor accusing the high priest, Joshua, and saying his clothes are filthy. He's, he's too much of a sinner to have this role. He can't be the high priest. If he's the holiest guy you've got, what does that say about your people? Because he's a filthy sinner. He's accusing Joshua and then by extension the rest of the nation to the father. He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the accuser of the people of God. I think that ended with the first Easter. 
I think that's what it means for Satan to be evicted from heaven. He's no longer able to accuse God's people before God. He's not able to do that. That role of prosecuting attorney, that's been taken from him. Why? By the blood of the lamb. We don't, we recognize we're not, we're not made right. We're not made acceptable to the Father because we did a great job keeping the law. We're not made acceptable to the Father because we're a good person, whatever that means. We're not made acceptable to the Father even because we're really sincere in our desire to love God. We're made acceptable to the Father because Jesus is life and death and resurrection. Because of His perfect obedience and our acceptance of that obedience into our own life. Because of Jesus' righteousness that God then applies to us. We're saved by grace. We don't have to do anything, and we can't do anything. All we can do is receive what's been done for us. So the ground for accusation has moved. There's no more, there's no more place of saying, hey, you know, Chris, the reason he's following you is because he's lived a blessed life. That's irrelevant at this point. It doesn't matter. Because Chris's standing before God is not based on whether or not Chris is doing a great job keeping the law or even whether or not Chris is sincere in his love for God. Chris's standing before God is based on the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and that Chris has said, I recognize I'm a sinner and I can't do anything to make myself right before God. And so I'll receive your grace and your mercy into my life. And that's unshakable. That has nothing to do with Chris's track record. We, we're not made acceptable before God based on our own resumes, but based on Jesus's resume, resume and that's unassailable. It's perfect. So there's no room for accusation anymore. Paul says, who can accuse us? If, the, if God has said that we're, righteous in his sight, if God has said we're not guilty, if God has said we're acceptable, he's the one that makes the rules. And if he's the one that's saying we're acceptable, then who's going to bring an accusation against us if the one that makes the rules is saying we're okay? There's no room for that. Satan can't accuse us anymore. I think that's this. There's no place for us to be accused before the Father any longer. Many of you know that. You've heard that. You've recognized in your own life, I'm not made right. I'm not made acceptable to God because of what I can do or because of what I've done or even because of my sincerity. All of those things are filthy rags. I'm made righteous before God because I recognize what Jesus did for me and I've received that into my life. I've accepted his grace and I've accepted his mercy. But unfortunately, many of us slip back. We're not condemned by God, but we wind up condemning ourselves. We live under this kind of weight of self-condemnation. Now, there are people, and maybe some of you, who uh, this is what all the other religions in the world are, are doing. What they're saying is, here's what you need to do to be made right with God. Here's how you can be made acceptable. Whatever their version of God is, you follow the eightfold path, and that's what's going to make you acceptable to God. That's Buddhism. You accrue enough good karma, and that will set you free from the cycle of birth and death and rebirth. That's Hinduism. You uh, submit to Allah. You do enough good so that the good deeds that you've done outweigh the bad deeds that you've done. And when you die, Allah will accept you into paradise. That's Islam. Those are all different ways of saying, here's what you need to do to be made acceptable to God. As Christians, we say, no, that's not, it's none of those things. We can't do anything to be made acceptable to God. And God in his grace has recognized that and he sent Jesus so we don't have to. And again, that's why there's no condemnation for us. But again, it is easy for us over time to slip into self-condemnation. Most of our relationships, even the best of them, have a transactional quality. 
You do A for me, and then I do B for you. Again, even the best relationships that we have all have some veneer of that transactional component. And so it's super easy to apply that to our relationship with God. And he's not transactional with us at all. But it's easy, again, for us to slip into that. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3, he says, guys, like, you're foolish. Who's bewitched you? You began in the Spirit. You recognize that you were saved by Grace, you recognize that you couldn't do anything to be made acceptable to God. You realize you couldn't keep the law good enough. And so you acknowledge that and you receive the grace that God wanted to give you. Now, why are you trying to finish in your flesh? Now, how, if you know you were saved by grace, why are you trying to go on in your flesh? It doesn't make any sense. The way the relationship starts is the way the relationship continues. The terms of the relationship that, that you had at the beginning are the same terms ongoing. We absolutely want to grow. We want to mature. We want to obey, but we never want to fall into the trap of thinking that our obedience or our growth or our maturity is the basis of our relationship with the Lord. Those things flow out of relationship. They don't form the basis for relationship. We were adopted by him as sons and daughters, and that adoption is unshakable. And it was based on his choice of us. That's why there's no condemnation for us. We didn't earn our way in. God picked us, and he, de he declared that we were acceptable in his sight. And so we can rest in that. But for many of us, we don't. Just over time, we wind up shifting back into kind of a performance mindset. Lent can be a, a, a time to do that. Let me show God how much I love him by how much I sacrifice. Let me see if I can leverage God to do A, B, or C by giving up certain things. We may not even be thinking that consciously, but that's our motivation. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not righteous. Before Jesus did anything at his baptism, the father says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And he says the same thing to you every morning before your feet hit the floor. But for many of us, that's not our reality. We may say God loves us, but the idea of being well pleased, we think, well, I haven't done anything yet for him, to please him. I haven't done anything yet. And that's not, that's not how it works with him. Our obedience flows out of our identity, out of our relationship. It's not the basis for either one. Went to counseling when I was in my mid-20s, and our counselor, she had this theory, which I kind of grabbed onto, and she was talking about flesh, and she said, everybody's got flesh towards the Lord, even if we're Christians. And for some of us, our flesh is positively oriented, and that's me. So like, I'm a winner. That's how I see myself. If something goes wrong, I'm looking around to see what, which one of y'all screwed up because it wasn't me. It wasn't. I'm, I'm confident. I've never lacked confidence. If you pick me on your team, I'm going to say, hey, you made a good choice. And then there are people who are negatively oriented in their flesh. And they're the opposite. They, sit, they tend to see themselves as a loser. And I mean that like in the, in the Eeyore kind of way. If something goes wrong, their immediate thought is I screwed up. How did I mess this up? Even if they didn't have anything to do with it, their immediate thought is it's my fault. They think nobody's going to pick me. I don't have anything to offer anyone. If you're positively oriented like me, it's sin. But our sin tends to fall in the pride arrogance category. If you're negatively oriented, it's easy for you to fall into this self-condemnation category. God doesn't condemn you, but you condemn yourself. You're never good enough. 
And you know you're never good enough. You never get to everything on the list, ever. There's all, you live under the weight of should and ought, and it crushes you. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, you're thinking, I, I've never experienced that. I have no idea what you're talking about. All I feel is this weight to perform. All I see are all of the things I haven't yet done. All I see are all of the places where I'm coming up short. You're condemning yourself. And then the enemy's piling on. He can't accuse you before the Father anymore, but he can certainly accuse you to yourself. And he does that to us all the time. If you feel like that kid, you're sitting in the corner with the dunce cap on, that's self-condemnation. God doesn't do that to you. Precious, righteous in his sight. He certainly doesn't see you as someone who needs to go sit and time out because you didn't do a good enough job. But if you live that way, if you were honest today and say, that's how I feel, like my head is hanging down. We want you to be set free from that. There's not three steps. I can't give you a technique. It's revelation. God needs to communicate to you in a way that you understand. You need to hear as clearly as you hear me speaking to you right now. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I love you. And I'm pleased with you before you do a thing. And you need to know that that's not semantics and that's not self-esteem and that's not trying to puff yourself up. That's reality. And that, that, that forms security in you that then allows you to live courageously and faithfully before the Lord. That's what allows you to stretch in obedience and maturity because you know none of those things are the basis for your relationship with God. They're all flowing out of your relationship with him. And so you can take risks and you can be wrong and you can oversleep and not pray and not then beat yourself up for the rest of the day because the basis of your relationship is not your performance. The basis for your relationship is what Jesus has done for you and your acceptance of that. But for some of you, that's so far from your reality. And I want to implore you this morning, ask the Lord, you can go ahead and close your eyes. Just ask all of you can, just ask the Lord, God, speak to me in a way that I would understand. I need to know that you love me and I need to know that you're pleased with me. If, all of, if that's just words to you, if you don't know that in the core of your being, you need to be praying. That. And if you're worried, oh, it's gonna make me complacent. My, that, where's my motivation to grow? That's not, it won't. All it's going to do is pull you off a treadmill, running in circles, and it'll set you free to actually run a race, to go somewhere. God, I pray for every man and woman. I pray especially uh, for our students, as many of them are just beginning this life with you. I pray from early in their walk with you that they would know how much you love them and how pleased you are with them. They live in a world where they're getting grades, they're graded on their performance, where they're making teams or getting cut, where they're getting asked to things or not, and it's all based on how they look or who they know or how well they can kick a ball. We got, God, we pray 
as their parents, as adults in this room. And when it comes to their relationship with you, they would realize none of that matters. You don't give a rip. That their sense of identity would not be based on their transcript, their college application, or whether they get asked to the prom. That they would know who they are as a son or a daughter, loved by you and pleasing to you. And out of that identity, God, we pray they would run far and they would run fast. And God, I pray for all the adults in the room who've, we've all kind of, we've been swimming in the water of transactional relationships for so long. To hear something else, it's not even, it's almost like a different language. And we think, can this really be true? Really, really true? God, I pray that you would speak to us, each one of us, who would know how deeply you love us, how well-pleasing we are to you. God, I pray for any who are living under the dunce cap, under the weight of self-condemnation. Would you set them free this afternoon? And I pray they'd never look back. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, ministry to you.